to the library, she picks out a, a book about a certain type of animal, and she has me read them to her in the evening. And I have to admit, I'm learning a lot right alongside her every night. And a while back, I picked her up a book about oceanic animals, and in the book, it explained the difference between whales and fish. And Ava, like I'm sure with most kids, thought that a whale was just a big fish because it looks similar, has a similar habitat. But in the book, we read that whales are mammals, and there is a difference between mammals and fish. For example, mammals have skin and fur. So do whales, believe it or not. Fish have scales. Mammals are warm-blooded. Whales are warm-blooded. Most fish are cold-blooded. Mammals give birth to live young. Whales give birth to live young. Most fish lay eggs. And one of the most distinct characteristics is that all mammals have lungs and take in oxygen from the air. And that's true of whales. But fish have gills, and they breathe underwater. So after reading this, Ava and I began to look throughout the book at other animals in the sea, and we applied this test to other sea creatures by using this criteria. And Ava discovered that other oceanic animals include dolphins and sea lions and manatees and seals. She was also able to tell which animals of the sea were not mammals but fish. And, and some were more difficult to tell than, than others. For example, sharks. There are some sharks that are warm-blooded. Some give birth to live young. That some are cold-blooded. And they lay eggs. There's even a big shark called a whale shark. So are some types of sharks mammals? The answer is no, though there are some uh, exceptions with certain characteristics. There is one characteristic that is found in every shark. Do you know what that is? They have gills. They have gills. For that reason, sharks are classified as fish. And whale sharks get their names not because of their similarity to mammals, but because of their size. All right? And I tell you all that, many of you are like, okay, I've learned a lot today. I can go home. But hang with me, okay? I, I tell you all that to make this simple point. At times, it's very helpful to know the defining characteristics of what makes something one thing and not another. That's true when it comes to fish and mammals in the sea. And that's definitely true when it comes to the church. You know, there are many gatherings that are taking place in our world today that are called church. There are many groups who are meeting today and on other days, each and every week, who refer to themselves as the church. But when you examine them, when you look real closely, what you find is that some of these groups are no more a church than whale sharks are mammals. Follow me? Then the question becomes, well, if that's the case, then what makes the church a true church? Well, this has been a debate throughout church history. There's been a lot of ink 
spilled over this question of what makes the church a church. And unfortunately, it's not as easy as saying, well, does it have gills or lungs? Does it have skin and fur or scales? At times, the lines are not as clear. That's why I'm thankful for the scholarship of those who have gone before us. And one of the most influential theologians of our day outside of the scriptures, and one of my favorites, as many of you know, is the 16th century reformer Martin Luther. Luther taught that there are two key essential marks of an authentic church. The first is whether or not the church clearly teaches and preaches, explains and presents the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So according to Luther, the first defining mark of a true church is whether or not they are gospel-centered. Whether they teach, whether they, they, they or not they explain, whether or not they preach the gospel on a weekly basis. And the second sign, the second defining mark for Luther of a true church is one that rightly administers the sacraments or what we call the ordinances. The word ordinance is just a fancy term that means a decree, a rule, a law, a command. When used in evangelical circles and churches, it refers to something that was issued and ordained, something that was established by Christ himself. And in the scriptures, we see that Christ has established two ordinances, two decrees that he has given us. Those are communion and baptism. So according to Luther, these are the marks of an authentic church. One is if they teach and preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The other two is that they administer the ordinances of communion and baptism. So in layman's terms, the true church preaches the gospel, practices communion, and practices baptism. Last week, we looked at communion. We not only talked about it, what the scriptures teach about it, but we also took communion. And this week, we're going to talk about baptism. And at the end of the service, we're going to have two come forward to be baptized. It's an exciting service. Believers, I hope you're encouraged here this morning that that it's 2014, 2,000 years after these ordinances were established by our Lord and administered by the first church in the first century and we're still doing today what they were doing then. That should encourage you. One, we are gospel-centered at this church. Not a week goes by when we're not focusing on teaching, preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And still to this day, we are being obedient to Christ by taking communion and by performing baptisms. Believers, for for these reasons and for many, many more, I'm convinced that this church is the true church. We're being the type of church that God has called us to be. Now, could we be the body better? Of course, always. We're doing a lot of things right. And I believe that we're a lot healthier than many. And I also believe we're on the path to being the body better. To help us do that, we're going to talk about baptism. 
this morning. Now, it's important for me to let you know that there are disagreements in the church about both the mode and the meaning for baptism. There are differences among some on how baptism happens, why it happens, what happens when it happens, and how it is administered. A lot of trees have died over this discussion. So what I want to do for the rest of our time here this morning is explain to you what we as leaders, what we as a church believe Scripture teaches about baptism. First is this. Number one, we believe baptism is vital. Now this first point here is an important point to make because many don't believe that baptism is. I read a report recently that in our world today, we have the largest number of unbaptized professing Christians in the history of the church. The stat guys give a few reasons for this. One of the main reasons is because there is an ever-growing individualistic and consumerist mentality in our church today among our believers. And outside the church as well, right? Many of them aren't in the church. As we've said in the past, many don't see the church as being necessary. They believe they can be who Christ has called them to be apart from his people, apart from the body of Christ. And though they stay at home and they watch church on TV or listen to it on the radio, they never hear or see baptisms administered because they don't televise those things. And when they do go to church, They go for the purpose of of speaking in to the goings-on in the church, and that's it. And they go in with the mentality of a consumer saying, what can you do for me? It's rare nowadays. People join the church for the purpose of sitting under the authority of God's Word and for the purpose of examining themselves by the Scriptures. Now, I know we've had many join recently who have, and I'm thankful for that. But you're in the minority. And because of that, this large number of unbaptized believers continues to rise. Folks, that's a problem. That's a problem because Scripture is clear. Baptism is vital. It's commanded from Scripture. It's commanded for the church. Church, we're commanded to baptize believers. We're called as a church to be baptizing believers. Listen to Matthew 28. You have these in your spiritual growth guide. I'm going to be jumping around a lot. So just mark these references down, or if you're quick, you can turn there and press your friends, okay? Matthew 28, we're going to be looking at verse 19. Listen to this. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his followers, he told his disciples that as they go out, they're to bring people in. They're to bring people into the church. And as people come in, as people respond to Christ in repentance and faith, Jesus tells them that they are to take them and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus commissions his disciples here in Matthew 28. And he tells them that as they go out and as they start new churches, they're to bring new converts in. They're to disciple them, and they are to baptize them. And church, 
This is our responsibility as well. It is. As we've said time and time again in here, this mission that Jesus gave in Matthew 28, it extends to us today. That's why we encourage all of those who are trusting in Christ for salvation to follow up after that decision with believers' baptism. So baptism is commanded by Christ to the church. It's also commanded by him, and it's commanded by his early followers to new believers. Baptism is a command for believers. Listen to Acts 2.38. Peter says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In this passage, Peter has just finished preaching the gospel to a large crowd of non-believing Jews. And many, after hearing him preach, they're convicted. After hearing the word of God preached, and they come to Peter and they ask, Peter, what are we to do? Peter says very clearly, you are to repent. You are to turn your life over to the Lord. You are to trust in Christ for your salvation. And you are to follow up after that decision with baptism. Tells the Gentiles the same thing. Acts chapter 10, verse 48. When the Spirit of God does a work there, and many of them trust in Christ for their salvation, what does Peter say? It says, Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a command. When we trust in Christ alone for our salvation, God tells us very clearly in his word to then be baptized. Now, as I said earlier, there's a lot of confusion on this. Though it's important that we understand baptism is vital, it's commanded. Some take this ordinance a bit too far. They teach that the actual act of baptism is is what takes away sin. Many believe that these waters are what save. They'll use verses like the one I just read to you in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, to prove their point. Many will argue that Peter is saying here that forgiveness of sins comes as a result of baptism. They believe and teach that Peter is saying to be forgiven of sin, we must repent, but we must also pass through the waters of baptism to be forgiven. Well, that leads us to our second point here. Baptism, though vital, does not save. Does not save. Though this water we have here this morning is clean water. It's clean, guys, it is. All right? It can in no way wash away sins. No water, no matter how clean, can do that. Only God can clean us up from the inside out. And for those who argue that in this passage, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that that teaches that one, their sins are forgiven through baptism, that the actual act of baptism is what saves us. They need to study their Bible some more, don't they? The scriptures clearly tell us otherwise. We're studying through Ephesians right now. And by the way, we'll be back there next week, okay? We've had a long break. We're going to be plowing back through next week. 
But we've already looked at Ephesians 2, right? Where Paul says very clearly in verses 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Two phrases I want to highlight here. This is not your own doing. Second, not a result of works. Now, let me ask you this. If we were saved through the act of baptism, would these phrases in these verses be true? No. Baptism does not save. Paul makes it crystal clear here that salvation is not a work that we do. It's the gift of God, as he says in verse 8. Now, though that's the case, though, though this passage clearly makes this point here, there are other more challenging verses on this. And we just mentioned one in the previous point in Acts chapter 2. Let's look at it again. Acts 2 verse 38. Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, is Peter saying here, when he says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, is he saying here that one is saved through baptism? Is he saying that the means for forgiveness is baptism? Well, according to Ephesians 2, that's not what Peter is saying, is it? We know that the Bible does not contradict itself, and Paul clearly tells us in Ephesians 2 that salvation is not by works. So what's Peter saying? Here's what I believe he's saying. I believe Peter is calling for those who repent of their sins and become followers of Christ to be baptized as a result of being forgiven. To show forth the fact that they are true followers of Jesus. Let me explain to you why I believe that. Many believe and teach prior to the church, prior to Jesus, the Jews practiced baptism but the reason people were being baptized in those days prior to jesus prior to jesus's earthly ministry prior to the church was for the purpose of converting to judaism that day if you were a non-jew you could join the jewish community through baptism so baptism existed prior to the church prior to jesus's earthly ministry But the only ones who were baptized were non-Jews who wanted to be Jewish. But when Jesus comes along, he transforms that, doesn't he? He does. He calls for all people to be baptized. All people, after they repent of their sins and turn to him. Any of those who do that, they are to follow in baptism. He and his followers called for everyone, regardless of who you are, Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, to repent and be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and in the name of Christ. And again, the reason why they they did this, they called for this, one of the main reasons why is because the Christians, like the Jews, viewed the act of baptism as an outward showing of one's affiliation. You with me? Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2.19? He told 
his Jew and Gentile audience, the Christians of his day, he says, so then, told the, told the Gentiles this, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's what baptism pictures for us. That's what baptism shows. That's what baptism does. Not the means through which one is forgiven and brought into the household of God, but it is a public practice that highlights and shows forth that reality. You with me? Folks, this morning, as we observe this baptism, get this, this is exciting right here. We are witnessing the fact that these guys who are coming to be baptized are no longer strangers and outsiders in the kingdom of God because of their sin, but rather they're fellow citizens of God's kingdom with us, the saints. That's what we're witnessing this morning. We're witnessing the fact that they are now members of the household of God with us forever. Wow. It's awesome. Like we said earlier, the Jews baptized to show what Gentiles are now a part of their community. And the reason we do it today is to show people publicly who's a part of God's community. Who's a part of his kingdom? That's essentially what Peter, I believe, is calling for here in Acts chapter 2. He's saying, repent, turn from your sins, trust in Christ, and then be baptized in the name of Christ to show the world that you're his. When Peter says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, he's not saying, be baptized so that you can be forgiven, so that you will be forgiven. We're not talking about being saved through the act of baptism. In fact, did you know the word for used there in that verse of scripture is the Greek word ice, and it can be translated because of. That changes things, doesn't it? So when Peter is asked by his Jewish audience, what shall we do to be saved? I believe he's essentially telling them this. What you're to do is this. You need to become a part of God's kingdom by being forgiven of your sin through repentance and faith in Christ. And then, because you've been forgiven, you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus so that you can show the world that you're his. This leads us right into our next point. Because Scripture teaches baptism is to be a result of repentance and faith. Get this. We should assume then baptism is only for believers. Baptism is for believers, folks. There are a certain group of evangelicals that I, that I respect who practice infant baptism. Some theologically conservative Presbyterians practice this. One of my heroes in the faith, R.C. Sproul, practices infant baptism. And, and many in this camp believe and teach that baptism is like circumcision was in the Old Testament. And it's to be administered to, to infants of believing parents. And though R.C. and those guys don't believe that act saves those kids, some do, they don't. They say what it does is it's kind of like a dedication. It, it, it sets them apart, and they believe it kind of sets them down the right path with their believing parents It's a, uh, to be saved. You know? So it's a 
it's, it's more of a ritual, it's a sign, it's a new covenant sign to be administered to infants. Now, I don't have enough time to go into detail on all of what they believe and counteract those, so I'll just give you a brief explanation of why I disagree with them. One reason is because there is no specific account in the New Testament where an infant is baptized. And nowhere are we told to do it. Now, some will say, well, there were instances where it said their whole household was baptized. Well, how many households do we have represented in here? A whole bunch, right? How many of you have infants in your household? Just a few, right? There's quite a few households in here without infants. So that could have very well been the case there. We can't just assume because it said all the household was baptized that there was an infant in the household who was baptized. I believe there wasn't. And, and nowhere are we told to do it. The second reason why I, I disagree with those who hold the infant baptism is because I believe the Bible clearly teaches that baptism is to follow salvation. Let me give you a few verses here. In Acts 8, you have these in your spiritual growth guide. We have the detailed account of Philip sharing the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. And after he hears the gospel, he believes, and then we're told that he is baptized. In Acts chapter 10, verse 47 through 48, we're told those in the house of Cornelius heard the word of the Lord. They believed and received the Holy Spirit and were baptized in the name of Christ. In Acts 16, 25 through 34, we're told that all of those in the home of the Philippian jailer believed and were saved. And Luke records this for us, and listen to what he says. He says, they believed on the Lord Jesus and were saved, and what? And were baptized. Same is true with Crispus. And y'all probably don't recognize that name because he's just mentioned briefly, but he was a ruler in the synagogue in Corinth. We're told in Acts 18.8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So, Scripture clearly teaches baptism follows conversion. Those who are coming this morning to be baptized, they've already made decisions for Christ. They're already trusting in Him alone for their salvation. They're simply coming this morning to make it known, to make it public. Now, let me ask you this. If that's the case, if salvation is a work that's already taken place in, in our heart, in the believer's heart prior to, prior to baptism, what's all the big fuss about? Why talk about baptism? Why take baptism seriously? Why are we so adamant about getting this right? Well, other than the fact that God commands it, I'll give you another one. We learn from Scripture that baptism done right serves as a public and vivid illustration of salvation. Which brings us to our fourth point. Fourth truth about baptism is this. The reason why it's important is because baptism paints a picture for us. It reveals an inward spiritual reality. Baptism is an outward sign of what has taken place within the life of a believer. It pictures that for us. Galatians 2.20, Paul describes salvation in this way. Listen to this. I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Folks, that right there is the picture that baptism paints for us. When one goes down into the water, it's a picture of being crucified, of dying to your own life. And it's a picture of, of, of being in union with Christ. And then when they come up out of the water, that's a picture of being raised spiritually to walk in newness of life by faith in Christ. See, it's a picture of salvation. Believers, there was a time in your life when you were going at life on your own, apart from and opposed to God. But there came a time when you turned away from your life of sin and you turned your life over to Christ. You gave your life up and over to him. You became one with him. You died to your old way of living. You were raised with him to live for him. That's the picture that baptism paints for us. Paul also said it like this, Romans 6, 3 through 4. All of these are in your spiritual growth guide. Again, you mark it down, Romans 6, 3 through 4. Paul said this, he said, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Listen to what he said in Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. See, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a picture, an outward picture of what is an inward reality. You see this picture it paints for us? When one is being baptized, they're saying, I've died to my old ways of living. I've been crucified with Christ and I've been raised now with him through the powerful working of God to walk in newness of life clearly shows us this picture it's one of the reasons we baptize by immersion not by sprinkling or or pouring because the symbolism is lost in those practices the proper mode of baptism is immersion do you know the greek word for baptism is baptizo you know what that word means it means to plunge to immerse in the water and this is the mode we see all throughout the scriptures. In Mark 1, 5, people were being baptized by John in the Jordan River. Not beside it, not by it, but in it. Mark also tells us that when Jesus had been baptized, he came up out of the water. Mark 1, 10. When Philip shared the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch, as they went alongside the road, they came to some water. Scripture tells us that they both went down into the water, and then they both came up out of the water. And again, the reason we baptized by immersion is because, one, we, we see it demonstrated in Scripture. It's the biblical mode of baptism, but also because of what it depicts. What it depicts. It's a, it's a picture of a life change 
dying to the old way and being raised to walk in newness of life. There's one last point about baptism, and it's this. This is very important. Look at it with me. Baptism is a celebration. It's a celebration, folks. Though I could take you back through all the scriptures and show you where we see this, I don't think I need to, do I? I mean, this point should just be obvious. In a moment, we're going to witness two guys get up and publicly profess the fact that they are trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. We're going we're, we're to hear from these two people who have recently made decisions for the Lord. They have made Christ the Lord of their life. They've crossed over from darkness to light, from death to eternal and abundant life. I would say that's a reason for celebrating, wouldn't you? You ever been to a baptism before and it was like a funeral? You know, people are real quiet and somber. Some people even look indifferent. It's not to be that way. Baptism is a celebration. Listen to what Wayne Grudem said about it. Look at this quote up here. He says, In all the discussion over the mode of baptism and the disputes over its meaning, it is easy for Christians to lose sight of the significance and the beauty of baptism and to disregard the tremendous blessing that accompanies this ceremony. The amazing picture of passing through the waters of judgment safely, of dying and rising with Christ, and of having our sins washed away are truths of momentous and eternal proportion and ought to be in occasion for giving great glory and praise to God. Couldn't have said it better myself. There was ever a time for shouting. There was ever time for cheering. It's during baptism. I pray we could treat it as a celebration today. This is your chance to get it out. Praise the Lord for this, folks. This is a reason to shout. This is a reason to praise God. So at this time, without further delay, I'm going to invite Bill to come up, continue with our baptism service.